You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. how old I am. Um, we're going to read from the word of the Lord, uh, 1 Kings 21. I'll give you a moment to uh, turn to that in your phone or the Bible in your pew or whatever you want to read. I prefer to just listen when I'm in your position. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab, went to his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. Then the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. 
And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, And the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Oh, have you found me, my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, or like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in this city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There is none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his, sh- on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're with us. We are looking at the prophet Elijah, and he is kind of the second Moses. And also, in a way, he is the one who is the forerunner of Jesus. So he's kind of between the greatest prophets, Moses and then Elijah. And then John the Baptist is kind of like the the incarnation of Elijah. And then Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. So that's, Elijah does uh, miracles in a way that you really don't see uh, almost anywhere else in the Old Testament except the Exodus. So it's a really big deal. And uh, I wanted to take some time to look at stories about him. And last time we saw that he was uh, on Mount Sinai, he had run out of the promised land because Jezebel had intimidated him so much. He had run out of the promised land south to Mount Sinai. He had quit the ministry. Uh, He was curled up in a ball in a cave. Uh, He was ready to die, he said. And suddenly out of nowhere in the middle of this passage, where you least expect him, it's like he's back out of retirement. It's like Michael Jordan coming back out of retirement. And he is shot like a cannon from Mount Sinai into the heart of Samaria. So he's going to the very place he was afraid of. He's going right back to Samaria. He's going to confront the king that wanted him dead. And uh, it's, a sign, it's a sign of justice. It's a sign of the kingdom of God and the justice of the kingdom of God. Um, I heard a story from David French who was in... Uh, Kiev, and he was there when the Russians were sending them their most powerful missiles, apparently the most powerful missiles 
to ever be sent into a city. We're coming from Russia into Kiev, and David French said that he saw the, the uh, Ukrainians sending Patriot missiles that we built and gave to them. And the Patriot missiles would intercept uh, these Russian missiles, and they would explode in the air. And he said it was just amazing to see the way uh, that this uh, attacking uh, evil thing was blown out of the sky by something else. And I think that's like the justice of God, that the reason God is, is, is just and the reason he destroys uh, Ahab's family and Jezebel is because he has to destroy the destroyers, that there's no other way to solve that problem of these terrible, violent missiles coming into Kiev. They've got to be destroyed. And so Ahab's got to be destroyed. His line has got to be destroyed. And Jezebel has got to be destroyed. And that's what's going on in this passage. You see, uh, on the one hand, this massive injustice from the empire, um, because that is what Israel has become. It's, it's been kind of co-opted by the empire by the god Baal, which is a god of fertility and power, uh, a god, an idol of the nations. And because of Jezebel and Ahab, uh, Israel has been taken on, um, just captured by the spirit of Baal, the spirit of power and acquisitiveness and, and grasping. And this is one of the greatest pictures of injustice in the Bible. I would put this right up there with what David um, does with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually kind of similar to that story. So you've got this uh, empire, this injustice. This is, this is happening in Israel, which was supposed to be the bastion of the kingdom that was the opposite of the empire, the opposite of injustice. But into that empire of Baal, you see this, this strike, the kingdom striking back. And uh, Elijah coming in and witnessing, witnessing to the justice of God. And that's something we can be also, witnesses to the justice of another world uh, that we can't see here. We see so much injustice. And what we can do as followers of Christ is to witness to there is justice coming. This is not the end. God will right the wrongs. So first the empire and then the kingdom. Um, and verse 1 says, Naboth had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab. So the land of Israel was meant to remind the Israelites of Eden. They were the country and the world. They were the nation, the people that retained the memory of the Garden of Eden. Everybody else had forgotten it. But they had the stories still. They had retained the stories. And the land was, the promised land was meant to be the fragrance of Eden, a, a memory kind of wafting uh, through the land of what Eden was like. It's a memory of the garden kind of coming up out of the soil. That's why it was so beautiful. It was a land of milk and honey. And so when you had land in Israel, it was not valued by Zillow. It was not put on the market. It did not change hands. It was deeply sacred. The land was very, very sacred. And so if your tribe inherited this land, your tribe kept that land. And every seven years, no matter what happened with the land, no matter how much it was sold, it always went back to the original family and tribe. And so what that meant is you would have generations of people uh, like Naboth, and they would have um, their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren sitting on the same benches and swinging from the same trees and pruning the same vineyards and their initials carved, you know, in the, in the trees. And so you have this incredible picture of what the land is supposed to be like. And then you've got Ahab licking his lips over this beautiful vineyard because it's right outside his window, which reminds you of 
David, you know, that story of David looking over at Bathsheba and just wanting her. This is the same thing that Ahab has with this vineyard. Because what does the empire do with beauty? When the empire sees beauty, the empire wants to grasp it, has to have it. Uh, you've got to possess it. If you, see, if you see something beautiful, you either envy it or you have to have it. You can't just appreciate it. And Israel was meant to receive the land as a gift. Your land is, is a gift from the Lord. And so on the one hand, it's, it's not communism because you owned the land. It was your own. That was your, that was your property. It's very, very important that you own the land. But it was also not kind of this you know, grasping capitalism where you just take whatever you can get. It was neither of those things. Um, but Baal came in and Canaanized the land, made it into like the Canaanites, who they had driven out of the land. And so um, Ahab says in verse 2, give me your vineyard because it is near my house. And yes, he offered him money, um, but this was a very special place. It was, it was the land of Naboth. And it was a beautiful, it was the, and it was especially prized because it was right next to the city, right outside the palace. And so it's like a child with a hundred toys, you know, you, and you've seen this before. You know, this one child has all these toys, but then there's another child right here, maybe this smaller, maybe it's your younger brother, your younger sister. And because they have that truck, you want that truck. So you've got your hundred toys here, but they've got that truck, so you grab that truck and you take it, because you can, because you're stronger. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. Um, the sad part about that is that a vegetable garden was a symbol of Egypt, and a vineyard is the symbol of Israel. So what Ahab is wanting to do is to turn a vineyard, which is like the most highly cultivated land you can imagine, into a vegetable garden, which you can grow very quickly. And it's like drilling the Great Barrier Reef for oil. I don't think we've done that yet, but um, it's commodifying the sacred. It is taking something that is sacred and beautiful and making it a commodity something to be traded, um, something to grasp. So Naboth has this moral imagination that is lit up by the sacred promises of God. Uh, verse 3, he says, God forbid that I give you the inheritance of my fathers. Don't you remember, Ahab, this is our land. This is generations have gone back and back and owned this land and have cultivated this land. And Ahab's moral imagination is all mergers and acquisition. That's all he can think about. And so verse 4, he, he can't get what he wants, so he goes into his house, even though he's the king, and he's vexed, and he's displeased because of Naboth's words. So, so Ahab is supposed to be the keeper of the dream, um, but now he's become like a leech. It's like Ebenezer Scrooge, squeezing and wrenching and grasping and scraping and clutching and covetous. That's how Scrooge is described He's like a spoiled child, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he dramatically buries his head in a pillow, like a child does, so that the mother can see. Verse 4, he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face, and he would eat no food. And of course, he wants Jezebel to see that, because he knows Jezebel. He knows what she'll do. He doesn't want to take any responsibility, so he, he does this pouting thing, knowing that Jezebel's going to act on that. So Jezebel comes over, and she rolls her eyes. You know, he's at it again, pouting again. And she says, are you the king of Israel or not, she demanded. Which is, that's, that's the view of power that Baal had. That was the heritage she grew up in. Her father was the king of Sidon, a worshiper of Baal. So that is the way she thinks. The way she thinks is you get what you want. That 
If you can get something, if you have the power to get it, you take it. That if you gain the upper hand, you use it for your advantage. That if you work hard enough to get to the top, then you delegate the least pleasant tasks. That's the way Baal thinks. That's the way the empire thinks. That's not the way the kingdom works. That's not the way we work with power in the kingdom of God. Power works very differently in the kingdom of God. That if you have power, then you give that power away. That, that power is meant to empower other people. You lift them up. In the empire, it's a pyramid where you, you try to get to the top and you try to get as many people below you as possible so they can worship you and adore you and serve you. And then in the kingdom, it's like completely upside down. It flips the whole empire over. And now the people at the bottom are the ones who are valued, the ones who go to the bottom and serve and give up power and, and take care of their employees and, uh, and work hard. Um, where has God given you power? You know, where, where, it could just be that you're an older sibling. It could be a parent. You could be a, maybe you're a boss of somebody. Um, you manage somebody. Maybe you're a teacher. Teachers have a lot of power. Or an elder, professor, researcher, doctor, you know, whatever it be, nurse, PA, PT. Um, all these different occupations, we, there's a lot of power in this room. Um, and where are we using that? What are we doing with that? Are we serving people who have less than us, or are we using it to get what we want? Uh, my wife is a PT, physical therapist in a hospital, and she said that only one time in 20 years has a doctor ever come into the room and said, what, I, what you're doing is very important. I'll come back when you're finished. In every other case, they've just kind of come in and interrupted her. That's not to speak against doctors. It really isn't. Like, this is just the way our country works. That same thing might happen if it was a PT uh, and somebody else, you know, a CMA or something like that. But, but the point is, you, is, it's just rare to see. We saw the owner uh, of Sabor, which I mentioned my favorite restaurant, uh, very recent new favorite. I wanted to kind of advertise that more than anything. But we saw the owner of Sabor, and uh, he, he was just back there, like, cleaning uh, frenetically at the end of the, he, he was staying at the very end. He owned it. He was staying at the very end and making sure everything was done right so that his employees could leave. And you just don't see that a lot. But that's the presence of the kingdom of God. When you see that, you're like, oh my gosh, something, is, something supernatural is happening in front of me. And when we do get what we want, it might seem innocuous, but usually at the end of that supply chain somewhere, someone's getting hurt. Um, Jezebel says in verse 7, let me take care of this. And then she has Naboth thrown out of the city, executed for breaking the law, for breaking the law of God, ironically. So that's the empire of Baal. And that's how power is used, and that's how injustice occurs. And now, I just love the fact that God sends in Elijah. I love that Elijah goes, but I love that God would send in Elijah. And he's like, this is not, this is not going to be happening. This has got to stop. Because I love Ahab too much, and I love Naboth too much, and I love people like Naboth too much. And my friend who's a missionary in Uganda says that one of the biggest problems he saw in Uganda is that people had a lot of wealth or the government. They would just simply take the land to people uh, who didn't have enough or couldn't defend themselves. they just take their land, land grabbing. So that's, this is very common, apparently, uh, all over the world. We might not see that in America very much, but it happens all over the world. And right when Israel is at the breaking point, it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And when Doug read that, I got really emotional just thinking about, oh my gosh, he cares so much. He saw that. That was not ignored by him. It's that low, long rumble of thunder that we talked about last week. A friend of mine sent me, uh, 
from Florida, uh, an ex-elder Chris Keller, he sent me a video of this long, uh, long thunder that just kept rolling and rolling in the heat lightning. He sent me that this week. And uh, that's the still, small, thundering, crushing voice of God. Uh, that voice, the word of the Lord came when nobody was speaking up for Naboth. Nobody was going to say anything about Naboth because everybody else was scared and intimidated. But the word of the Lord came to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. He says, arise and go down to meet Ahab. He is rooting around in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession of it. And I can imagine Ahab standing in the vineyard with his surveyors, and they're like pointing out where they're going to dig up first. What's the first, you know, 100-year-old vine they're going to cut down to plant their squash? And he looks over, and all of a sudden, coming across the hill, there is his arch nemesis who has plagued him his whole life. And he says, have you found me, oh, my enemy, he hisses. And I thought about Voldemort when he sees Harry Potter reappear out of nowhere on the bridge to Hogwarts uh, where the invisibility cloak comes off and, and Voldemort just hisses at him. All the Death Eaters are stunned and shocked and there's Harry again and Voldemort hisses, have you found me, oh my enemy? And I love that Elijah does not play that game. He says, I have found you, but it's not because you're my enemy. I found you because you have sold your soul to do what is evil. And I am here on behalf of the word of the Lord. This is not a personal vendetta that Elijah is getting out on Ahab. We've got to be careful about that. Whenever you bring justice, so tempting to bring your own personal vendetta or your own virtue signaling, or look how special I am, look how just I am, um, look how much I care about social concerns. That's not what Elijah is doing. He is sent by the word of the Lord. Because Yahweh heard them whispering in the bedroom when nobody else heard them. He knew what Jezebel and Ahab had concocted together without Ahab saying anything. And so Yahweh says in verse 21, I will, bring my, I will bring disaster upon you, and I will utterly cut off your lineage and burn you up. And he knows exactly, Yahweh only knows exactly what each person deserves. Um, he knows exactly what every single person, we don't have to sort that out. So you don't have to judge other people because God will. He knows what we all deserve. He knows what we've done. He's heard what you've said. Uh, he's, he knows what you think. And he says in verse 23, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, which, you know, you read that and it's like, it's kind of gruesome and it, it bothered me when I read that and I didn't like that. I don't really want a God who does stuff like that. Um, but people who have suffered a lot more deeply than I have and have really experienced injustice, uh, they, they do want a God like that. There's a really famous theologian at Yale named Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, and he saw his family and friends slaughtered in the Bosnian genocide. Uh, he was, his own uh, people in the 90s, the Bosnian genocide, were being killed. And so he came to America to escape that, became a theologian, and he wrote a book, and he says, it takes the quiet of an American suburb for the birth of the idea that there is a God without punishment. In a land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that illusion invariably dies. If God were not angry at injustice, and if he did not put an end to violence, then he would not be worthy of our worship. So I do think we want a God of justice. We don't necessarily want that justice to be turned towards us, but we want to live in a world with a God of justice. 
In fact, we want fierce justice. Um, we want justice so much, when I read verse 27, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 27, and Margie, my wife, agreed with this, when I read that verse, I was like, oh no, this is ridiculous. I know it's about to happen, and I don't like it at all. It says in verse 27, when Ahab heard these words from Elijah, he tore his clothes, and he put on a sack, and he fasted, and he went about dejectedly. And I thought, this is just putting his head in the pillow again. He's just pouting. But knowing God, he's going to actually respond to that and forgive him. And sure enough, you know, as, as just as God is, the mercy is greater, the grace. He says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And I imagine Elijah saying, unfortunately I have, and I think I know what you're going to do. And sure enough, verse 29, because he has humbled himself, I will hold off on this disaster until he's dead. And I want to be like, well, then it's not going to matter because he's not going to see any of it. There is such a tiny amount of repentance there. It doesn't even seem entirely sincere. And yet God is like a proud papa. He's like overjoyed. Have you seen my servant Ahab, who just killed Naboth, essentially, and stole his vineyard? Because he repented, I am overjoyed. I am celebrating. And you know, God tends to overreact like that a lot in the New Testament. Like the lost coin, the woman finds the lost coin and she throws a party for everyone just because she's found a lost coin. Or the father, the prodigal son, the, the father of the lost son, he finds his son, the son comes home, and he kills the fatted calf, and he throws this massive celebration. And New Testament scholars have pointed out that in many of the parables of Jesus, there's this overreaction from the king or the Lord or whoever it is, just this massive celebration with very little repentance or something very seemingly unimportant. But that's just the heart of God, that as ferocious as his justice is, and it is, and it will burn you up if you don't repent. It really will. It's real. But as ferocious as that justice is, the mercy is even fiercer, is hotter, is more powerful. And if you ever repent at all, he says, have you seen my servant Ben? Uh, he's overjoyed. The angels in heaven celebrate when one sinner repents. You know, he never, ever lets evil go unpunished. Never. He will never let evil go unpunished. But he will do this, that if you put your faith in Christ, all of your evil will go to Christ, who will be punished for you. And that's the gospel, is that Jesus was the one who was utterly burned up the way that Ahab should have been. And he was also the one that, like Naboth, was thrown out of the city and executed improperly. So he identifies both with the victimizer and with the victim. That's what it means for him to go to the cross. Is he, he says, I did not come to this earth to be served. I came here to serve people. And especially by giving my life as a ransom for them. Uh, to make them love justice and become prime ministers instead of emperors. And that's what he does at this table. Is he uh, makes people into prime ministers who are actually very selfish and... Uh, grasping and inquisitive, people like me. Uh, prime minister means the foremost servant, the arch servant, the prime servant. And that's only because of the Jesus revolution is the prime minister called that. I don't think many prime ministers even know that anymore, but that's what it means. And we are called to be prime ministers. And on the night he was betrayed, 
Naboth uh, on the very you know, night that um, he was about to be killed and have his land. Imagine him knowing that, uh, that his land was going to be stolen and he was going to be killed. Imagine uh, him coming over to Ahab and serving him a meal. I mean, that's not even close to what our Lord did. He said, uh, I am offering my blood for you to make you a servant rather than some uh, wannabe king. And I am breaking my body for you um, so that you will know that you're utterly forgiven and loved and celebrated by the Father in spite of our evil and in spite of our injustice, and we are unjust. And so whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, uh, we're proclaiming this amazing gospel that God is a just God, a holy God, a ferocious God, but that his mercy and his grace are even stronger and fiercer, and it's offered to all of us. So let me pray for us as we come to this table. Father, uh, I pray right now that anyone who's thinking about whether to take this or not, you give them clarity, um, that you would speak very um, clearly to them, uh, very softly, gently, but also with that power that you have, and um, just speak, speak and tell us to, um, to come and to, to receive grace. And um, God, I thank you if anyone comes uh, here tonight who doesn't know you or doesn't believe in you or is just visiting and checking it out and not sure what they think about all this stuff that thank you, thank you for bringing them here it does take courage like austin said it takes a huge amount of courage and i pray you'd um, let them know one way or the other whether they should take this or not um, whether or not they're ready um, make that clear to them as well and we pray all this in christ's name Remember, we love these rascals.